0: How y'all feeling? Awesome. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in the midst of a series called Navigate. Turn your neighbor and say, navigate. We're talking about how we navigate various complex issues in our modern world. And middle schoolers, y'all can be dismissed. Sorry about that. Middle schoolers, this is a great time for you to be dismissed. This is a perfect time for you to be dismissed, actually. We are talking about navigating. We are navigating lots of things as I speak very slowly as the middle schoolers make their way out. We are talking about navigating... A myriad of issues. Last week, we kicked off the series talking about what I will soon reference as I talk about it when I reference this once all the middle schoolers talking about navigating sexuality. We talked about how do we navigate and we looked at sort of the religious approach, which is largely unhelpful. The current cultural approach, which we went through demographic research and psychological studies, which is proving to be toxic and dangerous. And the biblical approach, which is Redemptive. I mentioned last week that I was not going to have time to cover every facet of sex and sexuality. And so this week we are in week two of the installment talking specifically about sex, sexuality, identity, LGBTQ, same sex attraction. What in the world, Pastor John, does the Bible have to say about that? Whew, it's an easy one, you know, easy peasy. Let's just jump right in. And then, if we can understand what the Bible has to say about it, how do we live it in a way like Jesus? That's really the question. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to tune, tune or turn to Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 6. We'll do a few bouncing all around the scriptures. As you turn there in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we got Sky Bible on the screen for your viewing enjoyment. Um, It has been quite the topsy-turvy week if you are a Miami Dolphins fan. We experienced the joy of Sunday victory against Buffalo and smashing of tablets from the Buffalo coaches and that was glorious. And then our quarterback went down and what was a very scary injury seems to be okay from what we can gather so far. Uh, Prayers up for Tua man that he gets healthy soon. Y'all started my timer. I guess you can't start my timer now, that's fine. It has been interesting for the Dolphins fans. We spent like two years wondering if we could win with Tua. And now like days wondering if we could win without Tua. Anybody like this is so, I just need Jesus. All right, let's get to Jesus. Some of y'all looking at me like, like I'm so unspiritual. Don't be judging. Romans chapter 12, let's start there. Therefore, everybody say therefore. I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. We mentioned last week that this world has a pattern. This world has a pattern, an ideology. It has a pattern of thinking about life, career, occupation, family. And there is a pattern of this world in regard to sex and sexuality. Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing And perfect will. If we jump back into 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says in verse 12, everything is permissible for me. It's in quotes. He was quoting authors of the day. It could might as well be this day. He says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Would you, would you join me as we pray on this simple topic to discuss in the convenience of our family living room? Jesus, help. Amen. Turn to your and say, get ready. You can find your seats. Watch it online. What's up, Guyana? Love y'all. How do we navigate sexuality? How do we navigate this extremely complex topic? There's potentially no topic more challenging, more painful, more polarizing, more visceral, and yet there might not be any topic that's more needed in our modern day than this. I remember when my wife and I moved into our home and we just fell in love with our neighborhood. I mean, y'all, y'all might have good neighbors. We have the best neighbors. We love our neighbors. All right. Linda's arguing with me, but we love our neighbors and, and we began to build relationships. Now I, I did not, I've had lots of different careers in what's a relatively short lifetime. I've been a teacher. I worked for a charity foundation. I, I did mission stuff. And now I find myself as a pastor. There is not a ton of environments where that helps me, to be quite honest. Like, And there's lots of environments where I try to wait as long as is humanly possible to let people know what I do for a living, because oftentimes pastors have sucked. I don't know if I can say that word in church, but I just did, right? And so I, we, we met our neighbors, and we were interacting, and we, you know, it's always like the third question, like, oh, what do you do? And so I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I do like spiritual life coaching, which is true, you know, and oh, I do this, and, um, and it was particularly the case with one of our neighbors who are gay. They're lesbians. They, they've been living together, married for a long time, and I was like, God knows Christians and churches have been horrible in the LGBTQ plus community. The last thing I want them to find out about me is that I'm a pastor. And so for six months, I was like a conversation ninja. They'd be like, i be like, oh man, yeah, I just got back from work. They're like, oh, what were you doing? I was like, I was, uh, I was doing enlightenment counseling. Like, oh cool, yeah. You know, it's all true, you know, but I'm like, and so I'll never forget. This was like six months of being friends, being neighbors. Hey, can I borrow some sugar? Our grandkids, because they had kids in previous marriages that were heterosexual marriages, like, hey, our grand, you know, the kids are playing together, all this relationship, all this interaction, we're hanging out, we're talking outside, we're fishing off their dock, we're friends. Six months in, I'll never forget, she came up to me and she's like, John, you're a pastor. And I was like, yeah. And I could just see her wheels turning. And she's like, you you clearly don't hate me. Actually, I I kind of felt like you liked me. Like we're kind of friends. And I I don't think I would have ever thought of being friends with a pastor, but I guess I, I guess I am. And when it comes to this issue, I approach this with an immense amount of fear and trembling because there are lots of areas that Christians have blown it, and there are lots of communities that we have offended with our nasty, stank pride breath, but I don't know if there is one more poignant than the LGBTQ plus community. And on behalf of a pastor of a church, let me start it like this. I am so sorry, and we are so sorry. I get asked all sorts of questions as a pastor when it comes to faith and life and sexuality. And here are some of the questions I get asked in the course of a given month. All right, Pastor John, I know last week you talked about sex before marriage and what God has to say about it. But what if we're in love? Okay, okay, okay. What if we're committed to one another and in love? Snap. Okay, what if we're engaged or okay, Pastor John, question for you: Our, our friends are getting married, and, and we're we're good friends, or we're coworkers, and uh, they know we're Christians. We love Jesus, but they're getting married. Should we go to the wedding? Okay, follow up question: A week later, um, we're act- they actually asked us to be in the wedding. Should we be in the wedding? Or, okay, John, I have a question. I invited a friend, you know, they're, they're living a gay lifestyle, but we're, we're buddies, we're friends, and I invited them to church, and they, they showed up because they trusted me, and Jesus starts moving in their heart, and God starts working, and then they had this other friend that was like a, a self-professing gay Christian who basically told them a whole bunch of different stuff, and then, well, what's true? All of these questions, all of this confusion, what does the Bible actually say about, fill in the blank, sex, sexuality, LGBTQ+, orientation, same-sex attraction, and then what do I do with it and how do I live it out? Anybody been there or is there? You're like, what in the world? Jesus, can you help? Jesus to the rescue. Here's a core verse that I want to frame our approach this morning. It's Ephesians 4, 15. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, don't be like immature children who don't know how to handle themselves, tossed to and fro. Instead, everybody say, instead, we will speak the truth in love. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of his body, the church. Three stopping points along the way. The first one is this, in Love. Turn to your neighbor and say it's gotta be in love. In love. Sex, sexuality, LGBTQ plus, the, the subject matter is obviously huge and important culturally. This has become, in case you did not realize, one of, if not the prevailing litmus test in our modern society. Are you gay affirming? What do you how do you think about gay marriage? Like this has become one of the issues to determine whether you are, well, a good loving person or a hateful bigot. It's a big issue in our culture, how you handle sex and sexuality, but it's not just a big issue in our culture. It's a big issue personally. I would venture to say every single one of us has a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, and we love and we care about them deeply. And so this is not just something that matters on an issue level. It's something that matters on a personal heart level, right? It's important, and it's heartbreaking because the church has so often handled this so important topic and subject matter so poorly. Sometimes it's an ap- absolute lack of care and ep- empathy. Sometimes it's sort of this brash, bombastic, like, and, and we say horrible things and we do horrible things, and and the challenge pushed back would be it's easiest oftentimes as pastors leaders and church people to scream the loudest about the sins you struggle with the least that a preach one of the pushbacks as i have conversations with friends in the lgbtq community has been you know john is very interesting that pastors seem to be very clear about what the bible says about homosexuality say for example but very silent about what the bible says about divorce and remarriage which christians do all the time I'm like, you are right, because Jesus talked about that clearly, too. It's been one of the challenges of our modern day. Man, it's sure easy when you don't struggle to be real loud and when you do to be real silent or even worth just to be mean. For being often the track record of the church has been the antithesis of truth in love. It's been the opposite of a gentle answer, which Proverbs says, turns away wrath. It's been the opposite of who Jesus described himself as. He was one who came full of grace and truth. And I would be absolutely remiss to not begin the conversation as a pastor in a church without a big I'm sorry on the front end. For Christians and Christian leaders who have been brash and harsh, and arrogant, and prideful, and nauseating, and absolutely maybe even said right things in horribly wrong ways, which is not the way of Jesus. Ephesians says, speaking the truth in love. Followers of Jesus, can, I just, can we just have a little family moment here? And if you don't follow Jesus, you can listen on in. Speak the truth, but please don't do it with such bad breath. <laughs> Like, if pride is bad breath, we've been speaking all sorts of truth with the stankest breath imaginable. Like, take a Holy Spirit breath, meant called in love before you speak truth to a waiting, watching world. You remember what Jesus did in John 4? We talked about it a few weeks ago. Remember his interaction with this woman at the well who was living outside of the boundaries that God had set for humans to thrive and flourish? Before Jesus stepped in to try to correct, what did he do? He heard her story. He sat with her in a place of empathy. He he felt it before he fixed it. He connected before he corrected. Whatever nomenclature you want to use, Jesus let his heart get there so that that heart of God came out of his mouth. Jesus heard her story brings up a great point because in order to know how we got to this current moment, we sort of need to understand our culture and our nation's story when it comes to sex, sexuality, identity, and LGBTQ. What is our story? Point number one is point number one is in love. Point number two is to culture. If we're going to try to chart a course from here to there, you kind of have to know where here is first. And we got to this current cultural moment, From a specific pattern and in a specific way, we got here somewhere. This history, I think, is important for us to understand where we're at right now. In the 1970s, I mentioned last week, there was a a burgeoning movement called the Sexual Revolution that kicked off in the 70s. And there was a movement within the movement of the Sexual Revolution of the 1970s. It was a gay rights movement. Now, this was kicked off by a New York City police raid in 1969. They raided and went into a gay club and used a, a... inappropriate and wild amount of force and finally this had happened and had been happening and ultimately at this point, in this moment the people that were in this club said enough is enough, it's called the shot glass heard around the world or the gay shot heard around the world There's different names within the LGBTQ plus community but basically it was this moment where they said we have rights to and from this moment, from this genesis began a lot of the gay rights activist movement in our modern era. It was largely begun as a civil rights type of movement. We have rights as humans created in God's image. We have certain unalienable rights. And, and so gay rights activist groups began being founded all across the United States, but it came to a screeching halt when the AIDS epidemic kicked off in the 80s and 90s. What began to happen is that the, the AIDS epidemic struck the gay community in a disproportionate way, and it was a absolute cr- humanitarian crisis. We were watching people die off in in record numbers, and where you would hope, yet again, here we go, rearing our ugly head, where you would hope the church would step up and say, you know what, human beings are human beings, regardless of their lifestyle choices and decisions, they are made in God's image. And where you would have hoped that the church would have stepped in with compassion, that is not by and large what the church did. The majority of the church not only was silent, they actually said things like, well, that's what you deserve. They actually said things to members of the gay community, grieving the loss of friends and loved ones like, well, God hates fags. In the antithesis of truth in love, they spoke in hate and revenge. And so what happened is that in the absence of the church coming to be his hands and feet full of mercy, grace, and love, the rest of culture filled our spots when we abdicated our responsibility. What happened is that these gay rights activists who had largely shifted into functionally survival mode, our community's dying, forget the activism, we just got to survive. The rest of the world turned around and said, man, these, these religious people are so full of hate. We'll, be, we'll come to your aid and we'll be merciful with you. And so it sparked a resurgence of activism and actually began a culture war. This is, fast, this is history. This is fascinating. The LGBTQ activists rallied to a degree that they had never before and they realized, okay, clearly the, the Christians, the religious, whatever, clearly they hate us and want to see us die. So we, they declared war. So we're at war. In the late 80s, the, what's called the Gay Manifesto came into fruition. There was a council of some 175 gay activists at the end of the 1990s who made it their mission to normalize and destigmatize A gay lifestyle, homosexuality, and punish anyone who disagrees. Now, again, you can say, well, how dare they? Well, it's what we, we, it's what Christians did to them. They realized it was war. We saw this began to come into adoption in the 90s as federal mandated courses were rolled out. Teaching gender is not binary. It's a spectrum related to feeling we identify with. It can change over time. It really took root in the 2000s. Here's my point. It is a humbling pill to swallow, but I need you to understand, we sit in our modern cultural moment and where we stand in regard to LGBTQ and identity and same-sex attraction. We stand as disciples of a very effective culture war campaign. This has not happened in a bubble or in a vacuum. And now we've got algorithms to keep us clicking. The sexual revolution, then the gay manifesto, is a subset of that. It begs the same question from last week. OK, we've got sort of two generations into this thing. How is this working for us? It really begs the question like oh my goodness like last week pastor John are you really about to tell me like we're about to take some archaic 2000-year-old 4000-year-old if you want to go OT 6000-year-old sexual ethic for our modern people like give me a break well if it's working great in our modern ethic then let's leave it alone but it's not working great It's been a heartbreaking dive over the past several weeks of I have approached this topic with great fear and trembling because I have friends, I have neighbors, I have coworkers, I have friends that I love in the LGBTQ community and friends navigating these issues and have been dealt with in horribly unhealthy and unhelpful ways. And so I dug into to different sources. I'm, I'm looking at the Utney Reader and the Advocate. And, and what I came upon across all these sources is what's come to be called a crisis of mental health in the LGBTQ plus community. I'm not going to take a ton of time on this, but what's called the psychological morbidity rates, which is basically an umbrella term for uh, anxiety and depression, is disproportionately represented in the LGBTQ community by far. Recent, recent study by the National Alliance on Mental Illness found 61% of people in the LGBTQ plus community battle depression, 45% have PTSD, 36% have an anxiety disorder. LGBTQ BTQ+, teens are six times more likely to experience symptoms of depression, twice as likely to feel suicidal, and more than four times likely to attempt suicide as opposed to heterosexual youth. Those stats don't break your heart as humans created in the image of God. They should. Now, here's what's been interesting is that largely this has been sort of chalked up to this, by the way, this is not from like religious sources or Christian sources. This is from within the gay community itself. It's a legitimate mental health crisis. And what it's largely chalked up to is, well, you know, it's because the culture is so stigmatizing or it's because of the ostracization in society. It's because the the media coverage, which might have been the case maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years ago, But there was a massive shift in culture in 2010 and what has largely become in the midst of our modern society an overwhelmingly gay-approving, LGBTQ-safe community, and yet the mental health crisis only is getting worse. Do you guys see the problem there? Cultural sources are like, we don't really know what to do. Let's keep blaming the Christians, although at this point the Christians are largely irrelevant in terms of culture on the issue. So what do we do? Who has an answer? Data is coming back with a scary picture. Our current cultural approach to sexuality, whether it's hetero approach or homosexual approach, is broken. Who has the answers? God. Not John. Not the religious right. God. Number one is in love, and number two is to culture that we love and are for. Number three is to speak truth. The reality we find ourselves in is that our modern culture needs help in this area based off of the data, research, and psychological science. First Corinthians 6, we referenced it last week, says food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Last week, we mentioned sort of in our cultural view, we view sex as appetite. Like, man, if you're you're thirsty, what do you got to do? You got to drink. If you're hungry, what do you got to do? You got to eat. Y'all are still with me. It's okay. And if you're feeling sexy, what do you got to do? You got to have sex. Sex is an appetite in our cultural framework. And yet God says your body is not made for sexual morality. It's different from just some appetite where you feel it and then you feed it. There are multiple things throughout scripture, and we talked about them last week, that that God has forbidden sexually. You might have a craving for it. You might have an appetite for it, but God has forbidden it. And when we engage in things that God has forbidden, just like in every other area of life, sexuality is no exception. We do not thrive. We wither. This is the challenge of the sexual ethic of scripture, which is diametrically opposed and so different from our modern sexual ethic. It's the guy living and sleeping with his girlfriend. It's the couple who wants to divorce without biblical grounds and just remarry and get a do-over because it's hard. It's thruples. read an interesting article about a movement within thruples, which is basically uh, set cauterized threesomes that say, listen, we're, we're happy. This is the way your life is. It's an, a growing sort of movement. And they're like, why can't we get married and get recognized li- legally as a civil union? This is what makes us happy and we're in love. And it's neighbors and friends who are living in a homosexual relationship or a gay lifestyle. And yet God says the body's not meant for sexual immorality. This is not God. Again, this goes back to the heart of God. This is not God trying to spoil our fun. This is not God trying to withhold. This is not God trying to be a prude and freaking out like grandma when you go to talk about sex. Like God invented the thing. He's very familiar and accustomed and comfortable with it. This is God saying, I love you. And I've given you groundwork and a framework and a path because I want you to flourish and thrive. As I mentioned earlier, so often the Christian response, the religious response to sex, sexuality, to the LGBTQ plus community has been so bad. But there's another way to be bad in your response. One way is to say the right things in the wrong way. Another way is to say the wrong things in the right way. Another way is to say nothing altogether. One way is to say truth, not in love, that's bad. Another way is to be full of love with no truth which is really just self-serving and dangerous. It's vitally important to know, and I know you're like, Pastor John, you already said this. What does God actually say? Like, what does the Bible actually say? You ever wondered, like, I just, I've seen a TikTok video, and then I've read this article. Like, what does the Bible actually say? Anybody else curious besides me? I know y'all are just sitting there because this is heavy, and I get it. Amen. First Timothy 8. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, I'm sorry. Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, and then he goes on to list, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul picks up this same conversation with another community of faith. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is the humility, the in love. Such were some of you. Don't think you're so amazing, high and mighty. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the incredible, amazing grace of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. who we run into this question and are like, John, I, I, I experienced same-sex attraction. Maybe I've been living in a gay lifestyle. I'm trying to figure out like, I, I, what does the Bible say? And so I think it's a great, fair question. And so what does the Bible say? For about 4,000 years of Jewish history and another 2,000 years of Christian history, there was pretty strong and almost unanimous consensus on what the Bible actually says. Now, obviously, in recent memory—this is why I think this conversation is apropos—in recent memory, there's begun a resurgence of supposed scholarly takes on—this is led by authors like Matthew Vines, God and the Gay Christian, maybe you've heard, read, seen some of this, uh, where they're saying, well— what the Bible says is actually culturally encased. And so I, I want to unpack it briefly. Um, they're saying what the Bible is saying is it's talking about um, gay rape. It's talking about uh, forcible uh, homosexual sex. It's the Bible actually does not have a schema for uh monogamous, committed, same-sex loving relationships. Has anyone heard that before, read that before, anywhere? This is, this is kind of one of the arguments. Like, well, that's actually not the case. Um, or they'll say, well, Jesus actually didn't talk about this, to which Jesus rarely talked about things that the Jewish world would have been unanimous moral consensus of, which they certainly would have been in his time period. But they'll say, well, th- this is not talking about uh, not consensual, loving, committed relationships and, and the the end of it all, and I'll get into a brief amount of it, amount of it. Uh, he said Paul actually wouldn't have a schema for that. Paul wouldn't know about anything like that. Uh, that's scholarly, the, the scholarship just is not there. Paul would have known this was a thing in the ancient world. There were committed same sex relationships that were not forcible, that were consensual. Paul would have had a schema for this and he still listed it as something he aligns with what the the people of God had always said throughout the Old Testament as being something politically out of bounds. Now, I would challenge that I find it unique that where there's been 6,000 years of consensus among the people of God, Jewish and Christian, as the cultural moment shifted in our framework of what we wanted and saw as acceptable. Magically, all of a sudden, six thousand years in theology, all of a sudden got enlightened. It's curious, right? One of the challenges of, of these two passages that I read is that in these passages, First Timothy eight, First Timothy one, and First Corinthians six, Paul actually makes up a word. Uh, it's not a, it's not a word that was used in the ancient languages, and so we actually have no idea what that word means, and and so we don't know. And I'm saying this. With a degree of tongue-in-cheek, I think, there are, I think this is genuine maybe from some of these scholars to some degree. But they say we, we actually don't know what this word means, um, and so it's worth diving into. The word in 1 Timothy 1 and Corinthians 6 that we just read is arsenikoitai. You want to try to say that one? Arsenikoitai. The word comes from two Greek roots, arson, which means men, and koitai, which means bed or lie. Say, so, well, we don't, we don't know what that word means because Paul makes up that word. Well, he kind of does make up that word, but we actually know what Paul means. In Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20, God is speaking to his people and he says, hey, listen, I'm giving you ground, ground rules for your flourishing and thriving. He said, I forbid for a man arson to koitai, lie with a man. In Leviticus 20, he says the same thing. If you break it down in the Greek, he said, I forbid for a man arson to lie, koitai, With a man like a man lies with a woman. What Paul is essentially doing is he is inventing a word, that is true, but he's inventing a word that is specifically pulled from Scripture and pushed back into the New Testament narrative to make clear this is where God stood, and it's always where he stood. The word literally means men who bed men. That that's the word that he uses, which to be honest is not very ambiguous. It is clear. God is consistent. Union Seminary, which is a longstanding seminary, I believe, out of New York, basically came out with what I think is the most honest scholarship. They said, hey, listen, we've looked at all the articles, all the Matthew Vines, all the readings, all all the interpretations, and the Bible says what it says. like, the Bible is clear about living a gay lifestyle and and homosexuality, which is different, by the way, than same-sex attraction, which I'll get into in a second. The Bible does talk about that. The Bible does forbid it. We just think the Bible's wrong. That that is honest. This is in Leviticus, if you're saying, well, Leviticus 18 and 20, you know, the Old Testament, we don't wear, you know, we don't forbid mixing fabrics and and, uh, kosher laws. And uh, the Leviticus 18 and 20 chapters are in the moral section of law, which is what we still uphold. We don't believe in lying or committing adultery anymore. That's because there are different sectors of Jewish law. There's civil and ceremonial, and then there's moral, which are binding and eternal. And that is where this is located. Now, I want to be clear because this this is important. Uh, Homosexual feelings, same-sex attraction feelings are not a sin. Just like feelings where you want to lie or feelings where you want to be greedy or gluttonous. Feelings like any other feeling or feelings like you want to engage in heterosexual sex with someone that you're not married to. Feelings are not a sin. What you do with those feelings in your mind and in your heart are what delineates sin from non-sin or obeying Jesus from not obeying Jesus. It's the actions. To which you might say, well... Pastor John, I I appreciate you giving honest conversation to this topic, but, but this is just who I am. And now we're getting at the issue. The fundamental issue about us modern humans and our sexuality is actually about identity. The challenge in our moment is that we have taken sex, which God invented, beautiful gift from God. Praise the Lord. You can amen that one. We have taken sex and we have made sex, which was a gift from God, into a God in and of itself. And so what happens is that our sexual urges and our current sexual partners have become so deified in our culture that based on our sexual urges and sexual preference of partners alone, it encompasses and frames our entire identity. If you just think about that for a moment, it's quite a reductionist philosophy of a human being. And God says you're so much more than that. This is not God cramping our style and trying to reduce us. This is God trying to expand our thinking on ourselves. God says you're a beautiful son or daughter. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You have destiny and purpose and good works in advance, and you are not reduced to a ball of hormones and sexual urges. You're more than that. Sam Albury, in his book, Is God Anti-Gay, which is a very helpful read in getting a heart of empathy, compassion, and truth for this conversation, says this. It sounds clunky to describe myself as someone who experiences same-sex attraction. But describing myself like this is a way for me to recognize the kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. They are a part of what I feel. But they are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am more than my sexuality. Take another kind of appetite, for example, to see how reductionist is this line of thinking. I love meat. I can't imagine a plate without a slab of meat just doesn't feel like a meal to me. Can I get an amen? He says, but my love for meat does not mean I would want someone to fundamentally think that carnivore is the primary category through which to understand me. It is an attraction and desire. It is not who I am. Makes you think, doesn't it? He said, Pastor John, sum it up for me. used a bunch of Greek. I wasn't tracking with half of that. What does the Bible say? Number one, the Bible is clear and consistent that God forbids homosexual activity Just like he forbids adultery, incest, and any sex outside of marriage. The sexual ethic of scripture, to quote C.S. Lewis from last week, is monogamy and commitment inside of the covenant of marriage or else total abstinence. That is the sexual ethic of scripture echoed throughout the Old and New Testament consistently. Number two, he does so because it violates his image. In Genesis, he says he created them in male and female. Sex is not just about sex, it's pointing to God. And number three, while I can discover, and this is huge, this I think is at the heart of our current cultural moment, while I can discover my identity, scriptures say I cannot define my identity because God already did that for me. At our zenith, and this is different, this is a fundamental difference in cultural worldview, and, and I appreciate some of my friends who, who are active living in the gay community, who, who basically have not come to say, if you believe different than me, that's hate speech, because at the end of the day, it's a fundamentally different life, worldview, and philosophy. Jesus says, at the zenith of our human accomplishment, we are not creating our identity. We're just stumbling upon the identity that God already wrote for us when he created us in our mother's womb with good works in advance that he prepared for us to walk in. It's a difference in who's the author of your destiny. While I can discover my identity, I cannot define it because God already has. And again, in really all of the sexual ethics of scripture at this point in our modern world, whether it's heterosexual, heterosexuality and not sleeping with people you're not married to, or LGBTQ plus and homosexuality, to, li- to believe this and then to live this, you will feel like the ultimate cultural oddball. And it goes back to my story from last week with putting Liam's shirt on inside out. Like, ah. my dad wants it like this it really does come down to that place of heart level trust where you're like, I I, just, I mean, I, I have, at this point, we're probably hundreds of hours into this conversation of going back through and Does God really say, and does the Bible really clear? And it's like, man, it would be so much easier if God was somewhat ambiguous here, just say, Ah, no, we'd actually don't know. And it's like, God, is there any other way in our modern world? I feel so foolish and stupid and ah, I'm a people person. dad wanted it this way and if we trust his heart it's not because he hates us if we look at the research it's not because he hates us It's because he loves us he wants us to flourish he wants us to thrive so what do we do this week my prayer my request to god is that we would double down recommitted in our hearts to get serious about following jesus we exist here at Greenhouse to help ordinary people become passionate followers of Jesus. I want us to get serious about following Jesus. I understand that in our modern format with the modern sexual pattern of this world to live out the biblical pattern of sexual ethics is supernaturally difficult, supernaturally difficult. And yet that is what Jesus calls us to and promises us to give us the grace to do it. I want us to be those that live and speak the truth, and love. I remember having a conversation a few years ago with a friend of mine who was living in a gay relationship, in a gay lifestyle, but we were friends. We built up a friendship and a relationship, and and he experienced some turmoil in his life, and and in a rough spot, just like any friend in my life, I said, hey man, I'd love for you to come with me to to check out my church. I I think you'd really like it. There's some cool people, and and he had he had bad experiences, like most people, unfortunately, in the LGBTQ plus community. And so he was like, ah. he's like, are the people in your church like you? I'm like, oh, is that good or bad? I don't know how to think about that. He's like, no, we're friends. I was like, yeah, you're, you're, no one's going to say anything mean. If they do, I'll lay some hands on them, and we'll figure that out, all right? He's like, all right, cool. So he came, and he starts getting wooed by Jesus, and his heart starts getting softened and And our vision is that we would be a place where people feel like they can belong before they believe and believe before they behave. And he's like, man. And and so he was just getting wooed by the love of God. And we finally sat down one day and I could see it. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things in all of humanity is to watch God wooing someone's heart. And I could see it. And so finally he said, John, can we talk? And we sat down and he's like, hey man, I've done like 50 hours at least of research into the whole gay thing in the Bible and what God says. And I've read all the scholars and like, God's clear. If I'm going to follow Jesus, he said, I'm I'm only attracted to men. Maybe God changes that. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. If I'm going to follow Jesus, it means I'm just going to decide I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life. Amen. You're right. And he stopped and he said, can you just appreciate with me for a moment how hard that is? And I said, yeah, I can. And it's actually been one of the realities as I've been a pastor now and in ministry for 17 years, that it's actually hard for everybody. The reality is the sexual ethic of Scripture is incredibly, exceptionally, dare I say, supernaturally difficult for everybody. It does not minimize the challenge for those in the LGBTQ plus community. It just shows that God is an equal opportunity offender. Because he loves us. I started talking with college students. They're like, hold hold, on. The Bible says what about sex? Like, so you're telling me in the prime of my biologics and sexuality that I have to say no out of love for Jesus. (laughs) I'm like, Yeah. You're like, oh man, talk about counting the cost! I talked to husbands who stood at an altar and said, "For better or for worse, till death do us part." And then the wife gets sick, and sex isn't happening for a little while, and then a long while, and then a, it'll be different for the rest of your lives, and might not ever happen again. While, and they have to decide. I made a covenant before God. The reality is we all feel this challenge regardless of our sexual orientation because our culture has deified something to where we feel like if it's taken away, who are we? And God says you. Sam Albury has been exceptionally helpful in looking at all of this. He references Mark eight thirty four. It's one of my favorite verses. Jesus had this fan club growing, ever growing. And they're all around one time and they're like excited to follow. And Jesus turns to the crowd and does the worst leadership move imaginable, unless you really care about people deeply. Calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. In sharp contrast to the pattern of this world, the biblical pattern of sex is supernaturally challenging, but at the end of the day, it is about loving and trusting and obeying Jesus above everything else. This is what Sam Albury says. He says, every Christian is called to costly sacrifices. This is the same author from before. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life or as you have known it, forfeit. It is laying down your life for the very reason that your life, it turns out, is actually not yours at all. It belongs to Jesus. He made it. And through his death, he has bought it. He has purchased it. He continues, ever since I've been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians well-intentioned have come to me saying something like, man, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me. He said, I get where they're coming from, but they say it as though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. And I tend to think if someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it's likely they really haven't started following Jesus at all. Here's my point as we get ready to wrap this up and we'll close in a final song of worship together. Ultimately, when it comes to navigating sexuality, it is not about same-sex attraction, It is not about opposite sex attraction to the person you're not married to. At the end of the day and at the root level, it is about lordship. Is Jesus your Lord? I thought this week about Peter. In John chapter 6, Peter has this moment where Jesus is teaching to the crowd and he's teaching to the masses and and he lays out what have been a very unpopular hard to swallow cultural challenge and people start walking away And you see the disappointment in Peter's eyes as he realizes, man, Peter, Simon, he was a zealot. This was this religious group that was basically like, Messiah's going to come, kick out the oppressors, and we're going to be the the head honchos. Like, we're going to be the ones with the clout. We're going to be the ones in charge. We're going to be the ones with authority. And then Jesus drops this wildly unpopular cultural bomb in John 6, and all of the clout disappears, and all of the followers go scrambling. And Peter's realizing the disappointment of, man, I thought following Jesus would get me me in with the end crowd, and now I'm realizing I will not be very popular if I follow this guy. And Jesus, as the incredibly kind, tender, compassionate leader that he is, he turns to Peter, and in the midst of this mass exodus of his followers who are followers no more, he says, hey, Peter, you, you can go too if you want. Perfect timing. And Peter, in this moment of exasperation, I almost imagine him hands outstretched. He says, Lord, where else am I going to go? You've got the words of life. And it's where I really land on this issue. Like at the end of the day, I really wish Jesus said something different. Because it sure would be a lot easier. And I really wish there was a, a, a different path. And I really wish Matthew Vines and others and their scholarship were actually accurate. And I really wish so many things. And I really wish God would say, Listen, as long as you love somebody, it doesn't matter. And I really wish, and yet, it's not what He said. And, and it leads me to this point where I'm like, Jesus, you got me. Where else am I going to go? You've got the words. Of eternal life the question is in our moment where we find it culturally very easy to make Jesus Lord of your religious life maybe a little more challenging to make Jesus Lord of your social life maybe exponentially more challenging to make Jesus Lord of your fiscal life and increasingly unpopular and uncommon to make Jesus Lord of your sex life Is he the Lord? If you made a covenant before God in marriage and you're tempted to break it because things are hard, he's the Lord. If you experience same-sex attraction and you're like, man, I've just been fighting for so long and I'm like, God, sure, change, change my heart, change my desires and it hasn't happened. I'm like, does this mean that I'm just, I'm not going to be without someone to love for the rest of my life? No. It means you get him. And you sit with brothers and sisters who grieve with you at the challenge of your earthly moment. While you await a a heavenly reality that's far better. Is he the Lord? Why don't you join me? Let's pray. Jesus, this topic is challenging and it's sobering and yet you are indeed the equal opportunity offender. Lord, my prayer for those in this room, for those watching online, for those over there in Guyana is that we would recommit in our heart of hearts to do exactly what you called disciples to back then, right now. To commit or to des- to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. And Holy Spirit, I'm praying that in this moment, your great love, mercy, compassion, and kindness would be present and overwhelm our hearts. Lord, you are the desire and the longing of every single person in this room and watching online. Lord, would you remind us again, would you stir up and fan into flame, first love. If you're here in the room, you can stand to your feet. If I can get some of our prayer partners to line the front here. I want to invite us to to close our time together in a moment of corporate surrender. We'll have our prayer partners up here. If you'd like to pray with them, you're welcome to do that. If you'd like to just kneel at the front in in a posture of surrender and humility and say, Jesus, I... I trust you. I need you. It could be something in this area. It could be something in any other area of life that was prompted from this conversation. But if you're here and you are struggling to find Jesus, struggling to follow Jesus, we'd love to pray with you, encourage you, commit to walk the journey with you. And I'm praying that his love would wash over you as we close out our time together in worship.